0: Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. Do you want to dive deeper into this story? Do you want to get episodes early and listen without ads? Well, you get all of that and more for as little as $5 a month. Go to dakotaspotlight.com and check out Spotlight+. Plus. This podcast contains content that some may find disturbing. Discretion is advised. previously on Dakota Spotlight. It was a difficult time.
1: It was a it was a difficult group of people to deal with. What happened to Barbara and Gordon Erickson was brutal beyond imagination. This isn't like any you
2: know, I just can't buy that you can't remember what you've heard yet. 18-year-old Brian J. Ericstad and 27-year-old Robert R. Lawrence have been charged with class AA murder for the deaths of Ericstad's adoptive parents, Gordon and Barbara Ericstad of Bismarck.
1: And then to be so callously discarded. And the reasons, no reason here. There was was no justification.
0: I suppose the fate of a runaway is that when you flee from one place to another, you concern yourself most with what dangers are in close pursuit. The potential threats ahead of you, well, you'll just have to cross that bridge when you come to it. Imagine for a moment that you are a runaway, a teenage runaway. You've spent about a full week in a house with some people you don't really know. You're supplied with a bed, alcohol, drugs. You sleep late each morning and then lounge around in the afternoon. Maybe you do some light shoplifting and then you party again that night. When Dave Pankowski and Carol Lander ran away one week earlier, they had no idea that they would be sleeping in Ryan Werner's downstairs bedroom on the night the Ericsteds were killed. That while they slept there, the people involved in this crime would be moving throughout that room. Today, Carol Lander, who goes by Cassie, is in federal prison for crimes related to methamphetamine. Dave Pankowski just got out of federal prison himself for the same thing.
3: I was actually at a group home at the time called um, Southwest Keys.
4: I just remember I was in in treatment at West Central with with some girls from Southwest Keys. And that was Cassie and, I think, Deidra. And uh, I just decided to take off, and we all decided to take off together.
3: A girl, Misty, she had a car there, and it was a little, tiny, red Geo Metro. I remember that. And there was, like, six of us that piled in there, or seven. It was like a clown car.
4: We ended up over at that house on Sweet Avenue.
3: After we drove over to this house, everybody just piled out, and it was like a bunch of people getting out.
4: I mean, it were, there were some adults there, and, you know, we all stayed downstairs. You know, I, I, I think I maybe I went upstairs maybe a couple times. I don't even remember. And I, I didn't even really know Pam or, or Weasel. I, I think I met Weasel in prison.
0: Today, Cassie still has some memories of that night in Ryan's bedroom when she was passed out on a pullout couch. Also in that room were Ryan Werner, their friend Candy, and Dave sleeping on the waterbed.
3: I also remember, like, trying to wake up because the light kept coming on and, uh, like, I could hear people moving around, but I was, like, not fully awake. Like, just kind of, you know, like, kind of trying to open my eyes but then going right back to sleep, like, passed out stage. Like, I just couldn't wake up. And then it asked me that next morning when we were all just hanging out, he said, did you wake up in the middle of the night? And I was like, no, because I really didn't wake up. And he's like, oh, good. I'm glad you didn't. And I was like, what? And then it just kind of stuck with me. I was like, what is he talking about? And then things just happened really fast after that.
0: All these years later, Dave Pankowski doesn't really remember that night. But back in 1998, he sure did. And detectives interviewed him several times in an attempt to understand that night.
3: So you woke up two or three times during the night? Yeah. And the time that I woke up when she came back and told me, okay, what they did... The first time you woke up to do because somebody came in that too, or what? They turned on the light every time they came in.
0: The first time Dave was woken up was likely when Misty Jones returned from Laredo Drive after the murders. She did this to pick up Ryan Werner and to take him back to help their friends. By the time Misty and Ryan got down to the house on Laredo, Brian and Robert were already gone. They returned to East Sweet Avenue, which was likely the second time Dave got woken up.
3: And she said, Come here. Like she wanted to tell you a secret yeah. from where the other people in the room were still sleeping. Yeah, they were still so sleeping, but she wrong she asked me to come over. They Did she whisper up. it to you then or Yeah.
2: She told me. Yeah, we were standing at the right by the doorway to the hall and right between Ryan's back of his bed and the doorway of the hall. That's where she told me. What did she tell you specifically? We killed Brian's parents.
0: Is that the words you her exact word? you remember?
3: Yeah. We killed Brian's parents. She told me before she told me that she goes,
2: She said something like, "You can't say nothing because I can go to the gas chamber for this."
3: She said that before she told me. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. She said what again? You can't tell anybody about this. Yeah. yeah.
0: Hi again, it's me, James. I just want to tell you about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to the Dakota Spotlight podcast that allows you to listen to these same episodes without ads and you get access to them before anyone else. Your subscription will also unlock access to exclusive episodes, the Spotlight Plus newsletter, videos, pictures, documents, and more. All at the same time, you will be supporting me and Dakota Spotlight. Please check out Spotlight Plus by going to dakotaspotlight.com. Thank you for your support. No matter how you look at it, Thursday, September 17th, is an odd day for the people who hung out on the corner of East Suite and South 7th. Robert and Brian and Misty returned to the house at 8 a.m. after dumping the bodies near Selfridge. Misty Jones goes to sleep in Ryan's waterbed, while Brian argues briefly with his girlfriend Amy, who is understandably angry at her boyfriend for staying out all night. Amy Werner ditches school for the day, and she goes to bed with Brian. Robert Lawrence stays awake. He gives Ryan Werner a ride to Bismarck High School. Two hours later, Robert Lawrence runs into a friend, DJ. He tells D.J. about the murders. At around 11 a.m., several of them drive to Stanton, North Dakota, an hour away to the northwest. They want to visit a friend named J.J. in jail. They travel there in two cars. Misty drives her red Geo Metro with Brian, Amy, and Candy. Misty gets pulled over by a highway patrol and is given a speeding ticket. Robert Lawrence and Michelle Werner also drive up to Stanton in the stolen pickup, but on the way there, they stop at Bismarck High School and pick up Ryan Werner. In Stanton, North Dakota, Robert and Brian tell the group that they're going to leave the state and they want their girlfriends, Amy and Michelle, to come along with them. The girls agree. Their brother Ryan Werner is also going to come along. Somewhere around that time, Ryan tells Michelle about the murders Somehow they don't tell their sister Amy but they include Amy on the plans of leaving the state all five of them in the pickup Robert, Brian, Amy, Michelle, and Ryan When they arrive back in Bismarck they drop Ryan Werner off at the house on East Sweet Avenue and they give him a mission Pack all our clothes, they tell him, We'll be back to pick you up later At some point, they tell Amy about the homicides. She breaks down and becomes hysterical. Then, while Ryan is still packing their clothing, Robert and Brian and their girlfriends go to get the Ericstad's other car, the Caddy. In the garage, Brian tells Amy, don't touch a damn thing. Amy gets in the Caddy with Brian, and off they go. First, they get some gas, and then... Off to find Rick Storhog. Rick Storhog meets them at Pony Express gas station and has a private conversation with Brian. Rick tells the police later that he doesn't ask Brian, hey, whose car is this, and that they never talk about Brian's parents. He tells the police that he never sees Brian again, but that's not true. In reality, they agree to meet later at the Rapids over in Mandan. Robert and Michelle are driving the pickup, Brian and Amy, the caddy. They all head over towards the house on East Suite. Time to pick up Brian, perhaps. They run into their friends, Courtney and Allison, and they all talk in the parking lot of Denny's restaurant, just a stone's throw away from a and Pizza. Allison and Courtney had been by East Suite, and they'd learned that the cops had been there to arrest two runaways, Perhaps it's too risky to return to the house now, so they ditched their plan of picking up Ryan, and instead, they head off to the Rapids in Mandan. On the way to the Rapids, Robert and Michelle dump some bloody blankets in a place named J.C. Park in Mandan. Finally, they meet up by the Hart River at 5 p.m. They are Robert Lawrence and his girlfriend, Michelle Warner, Brian Ericstead and his girlfriend, Amy Warner, and Rick Storhog and his girlfriend, Misty Jones. The Werner sisters decide at the last minute not to flee with their boyfriends. So, they all say their goodbyes. Robert and Brian drive off, and then, I guess, they all go home. Nobody goes to the police station. Somehow, they wait. Somehow, they go to bed. Somehow, they sleep. Cassie Lander, one of the two runaways arrested earlier that day, will not learn about the murders until two days later, when she reads about it in the newspaper.
3: My stomach dropped. I was like, oh my gosh, that, you know, like it could have been me. And my mom even said that too. She said, that could have been you. You don't know what could have happened there. And why do you do this? And, you know, it made me think twice about running away and doing stupid stuff with random people.
0: Three full days after the murders, on the evening of Sunday, September 20th, while on the run, Brian Eriksed calls his friend Rick Storhog at his parents' house in Bismarck, North Dakota. What Brian doesn't know is that the Storhog family has allowed their home phone to be traced in the event that this might happen. The police officer who takes Mr. Storhog's phone call would report later that he could hear Rick Storhog in the background swearing at his father, cursing him, for turning in his friend, Brian. Late Sunday night, Sergeant Bob Haas gets called into the station to conduct an interview with a woman who thought she might have some pertinent information.
4: And after I got through with the interview, Lieutenant Heinley comes up to me. He'd been watching it. He comes up to me and he says, We got a phone call. He says, Robert and Brian are in custody in Grand Prairie, Texas, which is... A, It's a suburb of Dallas, basically. It's in between Dallas and and Fort Worth, Texas. Brian and Robert, once they had gotten into Grand Prairie, they had stopped at a uh, convenience store someplace there in that area, and I think they had bought some beer. And they came out, and I think they ran into a girl. And they were talking to her, and they wanted to go party or they were going to do some drugs or something along those lines, she got into the pickup with them and they went over to this apartment and they're sitting in the pickup uh, in the parking lot. Well, this particular apartment building employed off-duty police officers as security for the facility there. And part of their job is to drive around in in the parking lot and look for suspicious vehicles you know, you got all these vehicles with Texas plates or Oklahoma plates or, you know, the states that are close to Texas. Then you get a North Dakota plate. And you got three people sitting in the truck, uh, a guy or a girl and two guys. So he runs the license plate and runs it through NCIC. And it comes back as a hit that the two people in the pickup are wanted for murder. And a pickup is wanted as it's stolen. And so he calls the police department, they come over and off to jail go Brian and Robert.
0: The next day, Monday, Bob Haas and his lieutenant fly down to Texas to interview Robert Lawrence and Brian Erickson.
4: Lieutenant Heinle got Brian up first. They brought him up from the jail, and uh, he kind of explained to, to Brian who we were and why we were there. And, and we had pictures of his parents that were taken in the the field there in Selfridge, and they were Polaroid pictures, and he showed them to him. and then Brian, he, oh, you know, he, he gets a reaction, and then he appears to be crying. You know, he puts his head over, and it looks like he's crying into his hands and stuff like that, and Lieutenant Hindley is asking him some questions, and we're not really getting anywhere, and basically... He says that he doesn't want to talk to us anymore. And so Lieutenant Hindley gets up to to leave, and Brian's he's looking at him like he's going to do something. So, you know, we kind of come into the room to make sure nothing happens because we're watching all this on 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 closed circuit. And um, we shut the door, and we go back into the room where the closed circuit is, and you can see Brian, he just... Kind of sits back down in the chair and kind of, it's like he's composing himself, you know. And he gets and just then, it's like nothing ever happened. He's just normal as can be after that. We bring Robert Lawrence up, and I go on to talk to Robert, and I show him pictures of, what, of uh, the Eric Steads, and you know he gets, oh, how did that happen? And you know. And then your Lieutenant Heinle comes in to talk to him again, and something goes on between the two of them. And Robert decides at that particular point in time he didn't want to talk to us anymore either. Another thing that we did while we had them, it'd been our experience that people who use knives to commit offenses such as this, with with the blood that's involved, your hand's gonna slip and inevitably You're going to get cut. You're going to have cuts on your hand and stuff. And we noticed that Brian had some cuts on his hand. And he really couldn't give us a a logical explanation as to why those cuts were on there. So we ended up taking some pictures of them. And we also wanted to look at their shoes. Because the amount of blood that we find in the house, there's got to be some transference. Somebody's got to have blood on them. So we're looking and we can't really see anything on either one of the shoes that these guys are wearing. And so um, they're put back down in the cells and stuff. And I think it was getting close to lunch at this particular point in time. And uh, I think it was Alan Patton gets a phone call. And he says, oh, yeah, I've got him right here. And then he looks at us and he says, there's an inmate back at the facility that wants to talk to you two guys. I said, okay. So... We go back to the jail, and they bring up this inmate. And, you know, basically, you know, who are you and blah, blah, blah. Well, he doesn't know these guys. This is you know
1: Sergeant you? Bob Hawes. I'm Duffy Hiley. We're from Bismarck, North Dakota. We're investigators working on this case. Yes,
4: sir. He's just an inmate there. And why do you want to talk to us? And he says, well, he said, these guys came into the cell... And everybody was, you know, like, they were all standing back like, ooh, these are murderers. They killed somebody. And he said, the big one, who was Robert, he was the bigger of the two, he said that a little bit later on he came over and he saw that he and I had the same shoes. And about 10 or
3: 15 minutes later he came
4: to me and he asked me what size shoe are your. And he says... He asked me to trade shoes with him. And I says, "Oh, he did." huh? And he says, "Yep." His name's Robert L. Lawrence. That's the guy that traded
0: those shoes with you. Yes, sir. Okay, would you take
4: one of these shoes off and just kind of hold it up like that? Yes, sir, I will. And we look at the shoes, and lo and behold, there's blood on these oh, shoes. If necessary, would
0: you uh, be willing to testify in court about? Yes, sir. What's right, right and wrong, wrong. And
4: he said Robert gave you these. And He said, "Yep." So I went down and had them do a presumptive test on what we thought was blood on, on the shoes. And he, the guy does it, and he comes back, he says, yeah, it's human blood.
0: While Robert and Brian are in custody in Texas, a very interesting thing happens. Robert and Brian's followers had been incredibly concerned about not narking on Robert and Brian and on each other. And yet, down in Texas, what is the first thing Robert Lawrence does? What he does is he takes the very first possible opportunity to turn on Brian, essentially narking on him. Robert and Brian are held in separate jail cells when Robert asked to speak with the detective. This meeting was videotape recorded. Robert Lawrence tells the officer that if they put him in the same cell as Brian, and if they bug that cell with a microphone and they record it secretly, he thinks he can get Brian to confess to the crime and to explain why he did it. Robert doesn't want to talk about his own role in this crime, although he does say he can't deny that he was there. He just wants to help the police get a confession from Brian.
2: I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And we have a, well, not so gently named podcast called Stop the Killing. Yeah, there's a clue in the title. We need your help to end the global mass shooting epidemic. Find out how as we bring you the stories right from the source.
0: If you would have told me that a Columbine could have happened at Columbine, I would have said no way.
2: I remember just thinking, he's got a gun. Something rose up inside, and I said,
0: not my school. What we can't underestimate is the power that individuals could have in stopping these school shootings. My little boy, Alex, was murdered. If we can fix
2: the failures, we can save lives.
0: My daughter, Elena, was killed. She'd want me
2: to do something about this. I know she would do something about it. Join us and be part of the solution. Subscribe now to Stop the Killing podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen to your true crime podcasts. 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing. She'd invested $300,000 with him. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con.
0: Back in North Dakota... A lot was happening on that Monday. One of Rick Storhog's friends tells the police that Amy Werner and Rick Storhog were headed to Bismarck High School that day to beat up anyone who said anything bad about Bryant Erickson. At 11 a.m., two young girls named Josie and Michelle walk into the police station. They're students at Bismarck High, and they have some new, interesting information. They say Amy Werner had told a friend of theirs that there's still a bloody gas can in Misty Jones' little red car, and that when Robert and Brian left town, they had told Misty to go back to Selfridge and to burn the bodies. At around 1 p.m., Detective Halverson gets a tip. There's a waitress at a bar in Mandan who has some information. She's friends with Michelle Werner, and Michelle told her that Ryan had helped to carry bodies the waitress comes in to the police department and leaves a statement. Then, a former foster mother of Michelle Werner calls the police department and tells them that Michelle had called her and told her all the details of the crime. She says, quote, Michelle didn't really seem to think there was anything wrong with what they had done, unquote. Then, on Monday afternoon, another search was conducted on the house on East Sweet Avenue, this time with a search warrant. Pam Werner's boyfriend, Danny, a.k.a. Weasel, was not happy. He asked to leave, and they said of course he was free to leave. He attempts to take his boombox stereo with him, but they stop him in his tracks. In the battery compartment of the radio, they discover drug paraphernalia, including a syringe. Weasel is arrested on the spot. During the search on East Sweet Avenue, the police also found some rubber gloves and a bloody towel. Robert Lawrence and Brian Erickson were eventually brought back to North Dakota, where they were charged for murder. One might assume that as the dust of this crime slowly settled over Bismarck, a clearer portrait of Robert and Brian was taking shape. That their friends and supporters would start to see them with different eyes. One might assume that Brian and Robert would lose the support of their friends. Nothing could be further from the truth, and some very odd things began to happen.
4: You know, now that I kind of look back at it, it's, I guess, how could you classify it as maybe kind of Charles Manson-esque? Two people died. They died a horrendous death. They should have never been subjected to that. And yet we've got these kids, I guess for lack of a better term, are idolizing the people that did it to them.
0: One of the first indications that Robert and Brian's followers had not fully understood the seriousness of this event came a couple weeks after the murders when sisters Amy and Michelle Werner were interviewed by a reporter for the Bismarck Tribune. For the article, the girls posed proudly for photographs. They seemed to be enjoying
4: the attention. I mean, it just, it it makes you sit back and you what's going on here? In that interview, both girls said that they
0: regretted not running off with Robert and Brian, even though they eventually got caught. Both said they would love them forever. They were still planning a future with them. When Amy was asked how she could possibly still support Brian, she told the reporter that she was sure that Barbara and Gordon Erickstead would want her there for their son, Brian, to support him. I have no doubt in my mind that I'll be marrying him, she
4: stated why Why are these these two such heroes to these people over here? i I don't know. they they kind of uh, dismiss the fact that Barbara and Gordon had rights to live as just as, as these people have rights to live, and their rights to live were taken away from them by a, a senseless act. that really, I have yet to understand. I don't know really why they were killed, why Brian and, and Robert went down there and killed them. I don't, I don't think it's, it's really ever been conclusively stated.
0: On September 28th, one of the Ericstad's neighbors on Laredo Drive called into the police department and reported seeing a single solitary beer can standing in the very center of the Ericstad driveway. The caller said he thought it was probably some kind of sick salute to Brian by his friends. And then came other reports. Multiple sightings of the mysterious weeping woman, a girl with shoulder-length dark hair, standing in the Ericstead yard, weeping night after night. She was seen looking in windows and going through the gate into the backyard. Then, in October, Detective Siseski contacts Misty Jones' mother, and tells her that they are concerned for Misty's safety. He has information that the Werner girls, Michelle and Amy, had plans on coming to find Misty to confront her about her possibly testifying against Brian and Robert. A friend of Amy Werner's named Summer has informed the police that Amy said she would kill Misty if Misty snitched on Robert and Brian. Summer says she felt this was probably a joke, just a figure of speech summer also says that brian Erickstead's buddy rick Storhog has said not to worry that he would quote keep misty quiet unquote no such confrontation with misty is known to actually have taken place in fact they all became witnesses for the prosecution and testified in court themselves michelle werner amy werner ryan werner misty Rick Storhog, Candy, and all the others ultimately testified in court for the prosecution. They did so, however, as they seemed to do everything, with a hint of defiance. A news reporter who attended the trial later berated them for their smirks on their faces and for their failure to come forward after the crime.
4: It was difficult to understand and try to fathom, but we this girl that is so concerned about Brian's parents that she comes down to alert us as to what had happened, even though she already knows what has happened. She had to have known. She claims that she was that close to Brian, and they're supposedly close, they're going to get married, and blah, 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 but, yeah, she comes down, but she'll tell us a little bit, but she won't cooperate with us totally.
1: And then that's the thing, you know, Amy was, was really struggling with this and she ultimately, Friday morning, was the first one to come forward and say something, sending officers over to the residence for a welfare check. But then she was very adamant that she was going to flee with them. She was going to go on the run with them. She was certain that they were coming back for Amy and Michelle to take them. To go with them
4: you know and in her later actions throughout this you know the stuff that went on afterwards and and the stuff in the trial and and the stuff that ended up in the paper and stuff like that it's just like no you know you're, you're still holding these guys on a pedestal you're still worshiping the ground that they walk on and you think that they're they're going to get off on this you're you're, you're fooling yourself You know, we got a pretty good good, strong case against these guys. They're not walking out that door. And if you think you're going to get married, you're going to be waiting a long time.
0: But really, none of this compared to what happened just a few weeks after the murders. At some point, Amy Werner decides she needs to break into the house on Laredo Drive, Brian's parents' house, the scene of the murders. At the time, it's still a crime scene taped off with signs screaming, Police, do not enter! And Amy Werner did not act alone. Bob Haas remembers very well when he walked into the police department and was told that six people had been arrested for breaking into the house on Laredo Drive.
4: She's bound to determine she's going to Brian's house. So I think she was given a ride, I think by the other guy that we ended up charging. I think his name is Steve Garvey or something, Gearing or something. And. His girlfriend, I think, is Candy. They gave Amy a ride down there. And then shortly afterwards, I think Weasel, Naomi, and I think Crystal all come down, I think, in Pam's car. It is a crime scene. We've still got tape up over there saying, do not enter. There's do not enter signs on the doors. There's It's taped off and stuff saying, you know, basically police line line, do not cross. And um, what these folks didn't know is that we we had portable alarms and we could set them up to one of our channels and stuff like that and we had that portable alarm set up in the garage. So the minute somebody goes in there and they trip this thing, then we get a recording saying, you know, this is such and such and there's been an alarm at 245 Laredo. The police responded that night, and they find, I think, Amy coming out of the house or out of the garage with stuff in her hand. They've got Weasel there. They've got Naomi there. Crystal's there. I think they were just coming out of the garage. And then I think Candy and Steve were sitting in Steve's car, and they're in the driveway. And it's like, what's the purpose of going back into the house? I, I don't know. But they all ended up getting arrested. All the juveniles ended up going to YCC. The the males, the two adults, they ended up getting charged with Class B felonies and going to jail that night. I, th- I think it's a very disrespectful act. You knew what went on in there. There's There's no doubt in your mind. Why do you need to go back in there?
0: So what was this story in September of 1998? Was justice served? What about Ryan and Rick and Misty and the others? What should we take away from it? What was it?
4: Maybe it was a wake-up call to people in Bismarck. Back in that time period in 1998, people felt pretty secure and safe in their houses and surroundings and stuff like that. Yeah, we had our occasional stuff, and I'm not trying to downplay the stuff that went on, but we really don't have a lot of murders in this area. And then to have a double homicide like this carried out by a, these two guys and their group of followers, it's just, I think it opened people's eyes as to there is another side to what goes on after we we shut our front door and stuff like that. There is a seamier side, underbelly, to Bismarck, North Dakota, and Mandan, North Dakota, you know. And, and I think that kind of brought it all out into the forefront. And I think Bismarck lost some of its innocence at that particular point in time.
0: The Bismarck Police Department spent a lot of time investigating Ryan Werner's role in this crime. There were a lot of fingers pointing at him for a while, but in the end they concluded that he wasn't involved. He didn't load any bodies in a truck. He didn't go along to Selfridge. He was defiant, and he didn't want to narc on his friends, but as Misty Jones and her little red car crawled towards him that night, it seems that Ryan Werner was just a 17-year-old Bismarck boy, a boy asleep in the only home he knew and the only home he had, a basement at the corner. Of Sweet and Seventh. Sadly, Ryan Werner passed away in
4: 2009. Maybe they purposely left him out of a lot of stuff. I think he was supposed to go to down south with them when they left. And I think he was a little disappointed that he didn't get to go on the little joy ride down to Texas. I think that affected his attitude quite a bit. That's why I, that's why I, don't, I,
3: don't, I really don't get how all these people, I'd be telling you guys I was in the house or not, but... No, 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 no. I never received any information that you were in the house. That's what I don't get.
4: And here I am getting locked up for shit that I never did.
1: He felt bad about having withheld this information. I know he did. He was frustrated. He was frustrated with himself. He knew that what happened was bad. He knew that what, what, what his friends did was bad. And and that, that loyalty to his friends versus doing the right thing was just really getting to him.
0: And Rick Storhag, what about him? I asked Bob Haas and Lloyd Halverson for their own opinions.
1: I'm still a little bit uncertain about Misty's boyfriend, Rick, and his role.
4: It's always been my contention, and I guess I can't really prove it, but Rick Storhog knew what was gonna happen. And he was supposed to be that third person that was going down to Laredo on the night that it happened. I think better judgment got a hold of him, and he decided, "I'm not going." I think Misty ended up filling in for for Rick. He knew what was going on, and as I I think this whole thing could have been prevented if he just opened his mouth, but he didn't, and. Uh, I don't know what allegiance he feels that he owes to these guys, but, you know, two people ended up losing their lives over him keeping his mouth shut.
0: The Dakota Spotlight Podcast is made possible through the support of members. Gain unlimited access to bonus materials related to this story, along with news from all sites within Forum Communications News Network. When you become a member... At com slash subscribe.
1: You know, I, I can't say with any degree of certainty exactly what happened. I, I do know that um at some point Robert Lawrence, Brian Ericks and Misty
4: Jones. They they go over to Rick Storhog's place to direct, try to get him to come with them. Um he doesn't answer the knocks on the windows and stuff like that
1: arrived at the Ericstead residence on Laredo.
4: They go into the garage, and from what I understand, Brian and Robert sit down and discuss how this is all going to go down. And uh,
1: Brian and Robert went in um, and uh, stabbed both of them to death. At some point, Misty went into the house. Um, She says, while Barbara was still alive. Um, She apologized to Barbara for what was happening to her, at which time she was chewed out by Brian, who stated his mother was a bitch and had deserved to die.
4: After the murders, then...
1: Misty went back to the Werner residence, Pam's house.
4: They go downstairs and they remove the blankets from a couple of bunk beds to wrap the bodies up.
1: They loaded the bodies in the pickup. Misty brought Brian down to the house. Brian and Robert were already gone. Ryan says he looked in the door. He could see all the blood. They went back to the residence at 701 East Suite.
4: They, uh, and they take the pickup. They go over to 701 East Suite. Robert and
1: Brian pulled up to the residence. They wanted Ryan to go with to dump the bodies. Ryan declined, but they left with Misty.
4: Robert and Misty and, and Brian go down to Selfridge.
1: Near Selfridge, you know, where they dump the bodies in a tree
0: row. And what about Misty Jones and her role in this sad event, helping to dump bodies near Selfridge, driving Brian and Robert to the house on Laredo? Bob Haas and Lloyd Halverson have slightly different opinions about Misty and her accountability.
1: And, and a lot of people ask me, do you think it's right that only Robert and Brian were charged with criminal activity regarding these homicides? and that the others really suffered no consequence. I think the two people that needed to be held accountable were held accountable. And I think these young people will live with this for the rest of their life. And in some ways, that's consequence enough.
4: Maybe I'm going to get raked over the coals over this, but she had an opportunity. She could have done just what Rick did. She could have walked away. She could have gone knocked on somebody's door saying, call the police, you know. There's something going on over here. We need the police. She didn't, none of that. I mean, if I remember correctly from what I understand about the trip down to Selfridge when she was with Robert and Brian, Brian is, I guess, he's starting to get emotional and Misty consoles him, you know. This is not... I guess the actions of somebody that we should give some leniency to? I, I don't believe it. I think, I think she's just as complicit as, as these other two. Sure, she didn't stab anybody. She didn't kill anybody. But there were actions that she could have taken that maybe it would have minimized some of this stuff. Maybe two people wouldn't have lost their lives. The
0: evidence files for this case contain many letters written to Robert and Brian in jail during the time they were awaiting trial. Michelle Werner, Misty Jones, Rick Storhog, and many others wrote letters to Brian and Robert. Every letter Misty Jones wrote to Brian and Robert was littered with, I love yous, I will always love you, I miss you. You might think that a couple months would be enough time for a young mind to come to terms with the seriousness of these vicious and senseless homicides. Misty Jones' loyalty remained immense. She wrote to Robert Lawrence and told him she would have two sons someday. She would name one Robert and one Brian. She wrote to Brian Erickson and told him that he didn't deserve what happened to him. This was all bullshit, she said. He had had a rough life. She wrote them and said, when you get out of there, we're going to throw you the biggest party ever and we'll all move to Mexico. She wrote to Robert and said, we will always be connected. I shared the contents of some of these letters with Bob Haas and Lloyd Halverson. Bob remembered the letters well, as he was a supervising investigator and reviewed documents across the case. Lloyd Halverson was unaware of the letters, or at least he did not recall them all these 22 years later.
1: To me, it's a little bit surprising because, you know, I saw Misty in that interview not wanting to tell the truth, being defiant. Ultimately, you know, cowering into the, into the corner. And I could really tell, or at least I assumed she really understood right from wrong, and she really understood that she needed to tell the truth here. For two months later, to say something like that in a letter to the two people who put her in this awful position and exposed her to this awful crime, why, why would she come out and, and say that? He murdered brutally murdered two innocent people.
0: I asked both of these men, if I could find Misty Jones today, if she was alive somewhere, what would they like me to ask her?
4: I don't know, when you when you called and you talked to me about doing this story, it was just, I have yet to understand, I, I have my thoughts on why they were killed, but nobody has really conclusively said that and it, it still to this day baffles me. you know. Yeah. There's been other stuff that I've worked that you, know, you shake your head at, but at least they'll give you a reason on why. There's never been a reason. And I would welcome somebody telling me.
1: Um, no, uh, the letters. I fully get her struggle to come clean right away during the interview. Very, I respect her a great deal, that she did come clean, and she did tell us what we needed to know. The letters months later to Brian or to Robert, kind of reasserting her loyalty to them, her love for them. I'd love to find out what she, what she was thinking at the time and how long it took her to overcome that and to think differently. Or perhaps she doesn't perhaps she still thinks to this day that the consequences imposed on Robert Brian were unjust. I'd be really interested to know that.
0: Coming up next time on Dakota Spotlight Season 3, The House on Sweet and Seventh.
2: I used to be Misty Jones,
1: but I'm not that girl anymore. And the first time I realized, oh my God, there was two people died. We could just go in whenever we wanted and if I needed a place to stay or anything, I could just, even if
2: it was like two in the morning, I could just go in and then go to bed. We didn't have to ask them for alcohol or anything. They just never came downstairs.
1: Robert um, was like, driving and he's like, you like my new truck? And still to this day, it's like a movie in my head. head.
0: The House on Suite and 7th is hosted and reported by me, James Wallner, and is a production of Forum Communications Company. Don't miss the accompanying mini-documentary, The House on Sweet and Seventh, which will be available on any North Dakota Forum Communications website. That's the Grand Forks Herald, the Jamestown Sun, the Dickinson Press, and inform.com. Again, thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight. Thank you for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.